Today's read, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. Chapter 1, The Seat of the Trouble. The educated Negroes have the attitude of contempt toward their own people because in their own as well as in their mixed schools, Negroes are taught to admire the Hebrew, the Greek, the Latin, and the Teuton, and to despise the African. Of the hundreds of Negro high schools recently examined by an expert in the United States Bureau of Education, only 18 offer a course taking up the history of the Negro. And in most of the Negro colleges and universities where the Negro is thought of, the race is studied only as a problem or dismissed as of little consequence. For example, an officer of a Negro university, thinking that an additional course on the Negro should be given there, called upon a Negro doctor of philosophy of the faculty to offer such work. He promptly informed the officer that he knew nothing about the Negro. He did not go to school to waste his time that way. He went to be educated in a system which dismisses the Negro as a non-entity. At a Negro summer school two years ago, a white instructor gave a course on the Negro using for his text a work which teaches that whites are superior to the blacks. When asked by one of the students why he used such a textbook, the instructor replied that he wanted them to get that point of view. Even schools for Negroes, then, are places where they must be convinced of their inferiority. The thought of the inferiority of the Negro is drilled into him in almost every class he enters and in almost every book he studies. If he happens to leave school after he masters the fundamentals, before he finishes high school or reaches college, he will naturally escape some of the bias and may recover in time to be of service to his people. Practically all of the successful Negroes in this country are of the uneducated type or of that of the Negroes who have had no formal education at all. The large majority of the Negroes who have put on the finishing touches of our best colleges are all but worthless in the development of their people. If after leaving school they have the opportunity to give out to Negroes what traducers of the race would like to have it learn, such persons may thereby earn a living at teaching or preaching what they have been taught, but they never become a constructive force in the development of the race. The so-called school then becomes a questionable factor in the life of this despised people. An author has well said, to handicap a student by teaching him that his black face is a curse and that his struggle to change his condition is hopeless 
is the worst sort of lynching. It kills one's aspirations, dooms him to vagabondage and crime. It is strange then that the friends of truth and the promoters of freedom have not risen up against the present propaganda in the schools and crushed it. This crusade is much more important than the anti-lynching movement because there would be no lynching if it did not start in the classroom. Why not exploit, enslave, or exterminate a class that everybody is taught to regard as inferior? To be more explicit, we may go to the seat of the trouble. Our most widely known scholars have been trained in universities outside of the South. Northern and Western institutions, however, have had no time to deal with matters which concern the Negro especially. They must direct their attention to the problems of the majority of their constituents. And too often, they have stimulated their prejudices by referring to the Negro as unworthy of consideration. Most of what these universities have offered as language, mathematics, and science may have served a good purpose, but much of what they have taught as economics, history, literature, religion, and philosophy is propaganda. And can't that involve a waste of time and misdirected Negroes thus trained? And even in the certitude of science or mathematics, it has been unfortunate that the approach to the Negro has been borrowed from a foreign method. For example, the teaching of arithmetic in the fifth grade in a backward county in Mississippi should mean one thing in the Negro school and a decidedly different thing in the white school. The Negro children, as a rule, come from the homes of tenants and peons who have to migrate annually from plantation to plantation, looking for light which they have never seen. The children from the homes of white planters and merchants live permanently in the midst of calculations, family budgets and the like, which enable them sometimes to learn more by contact than the Negro can acquire in school. Instead of teaching such Negro children less arithmetic, they should be taught much more of it than the white children for the latter attend a graded school consolidated by free transportation when the Negro go to one room rented hovels to be taught without equipment and by incompetent teachers educated scarcely beyond the eighth grade. In schools of theology, Negroes are taught the interpretation of the Bible worked out by those who have justified segregation and winked at the economic debasement of the Negro, sometimes almost to the point of starvation, deriving their sense of right from this teaching. Graduates of such schools can have no message to grip the people whom they have been ill-trained to serve. Most of such miseducated ministers, therefore, preach to benches while illiterate Negro preachers do the best they can in supplying the spiritual needs of the masses. 
In the schools of business administration, Negroes are trained exclusively in the psychology and economics of Wall Street and are therefore made to despise the opportunities to run ice wagons, push banana carts, and sell peanuts among their own people. Foreigners who have not studied economics but have studied Negroes take up this business and grow rich. In schools of journalism, Negroes are being taught how to edit such metropolitan dailies as the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times, which would hardly hire a Negro as a janitor. And when these graduates come to the Negro weeklies for employment, they are not prepared to function in such establishments, which to be successful, must be built upon accurate knowledge of the psychology and philosophy of the Negro. When a Negro has finished his education in our schools, then he has been equipped to begin the life of an Americanized or Europeanized white man. But before he steps from the threshold of his alma mater, he is told by his teachers that he must go back to his own people, from whom he has been estranged by a vision of ideals, which in his disillusionment, he will realize that he cannot attain. He goes forth to play his part in life, but he must be both social and bisocial at the same time. While he is a part of the body politic, he is in addition to this a member of a particular race to which he must restrict himself in all matters social. While serving his country, he must serve within a special group. While being a good American, he must above all things be a good Negro. And to perform this definite function, he must learn to stay in a Negro's place. For the arduous task of serving a race thus handicapped, however, the Negro graduate has had little or no training at all. The people whom he has been ordered to serve have been belittled by his teachers to the extent that he can hardly find delight in undertaking what his education has led him to think is impossible. Considering his race, As blank in achievement, then, he sets out to stimulate their imitation of others. The performance is kept up a while, but like any other effort at meaningless imitation, it results in failure. Facing this undesirable result, the highly educated Negro often grows sour He becomes too pessimistic to be a constructive force and usually develops into a chronic fault finder or complainant at the bar of public opinion. Often when he sees that the fault lies at the door of the white oppressor whom he is afraid to attack, he turns upon the pioneering Negro who is at work doing the best he can to extricate himself from an uncomfortable predicament. 
In this effort to imitate, however, these educated people are sincere. They hope to make the Negro conform quickly to the standard of the whites and thus remove the pretext for the barriers between the races. They do not realize, however, that even if the Negroes do successfully imitate the whites, nothing new has thereby been accomplished. You simply have a larger number of persons doing what others have been doing. The unusual gifts of the race have not thereby been developed, and an unwilling world therefore continues to wonder what the Negro is good for. These educated people, however, decry any such thing as race consciousness, and in some respects, they are right. They do not like to hear such expressions as Negro literature, Negro poetry, African art or thinking black, and roughly speaking, we must concede that such things do not exist. These things did not figure in the courses which they pursued in school, and why should they? Aren't we all Americans? Then whatever is American is as much the heritage of the Negro as of any other group in this country. The highly educated contend, moreover, that when the Negro emphasizes these things, he invites a racial discrimination by recognizing such differentness of the races. The thought that the Negro is one thing and the white man another is the stock and trade argument of the Caucasian to justify segregation. Why then should the Negro blame the white man for doing what he himself does? These highly educated Negroes, however, fail to see that it is not the Negro who takes this position. The white man forces him to it and to extricate himself. Therefore, the Negro leader must so deal with the situation as to develop in the segregated group the power with which they can elevate themselves. The differentness of races, moreover, is no evidence of superiority or of inferiority. This merely indicates that each race has certain gifts which the others do not possess. It is by the development of these gifts that every race must justify its right to exist.